0: Now, I'd like to ask you that that remain to please open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Now, we're in a, a small series dealing with the question of, what about Monday? Right, you celebrate the Lord's resurrection Easter Sunday morning, but then the question comes, well, what about the next Monday? There's still work you have to go to, bills to be paid, children to drop off at school. How do we apply and live in light of the resurrection in the midst of our normal, everyday life? And it's my prayer that we'll see through this series that the resurrection is more than just one event that happened on Sunday morning. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed everything this morning, I want us to think about it in terms of the resurrection perspective. Let's look at the scripture. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May God be glorified in the reading and hearing of his word this morning. There was a particular company that every year held a picnic. It was kind of this summer event where every employee of the the company would meet together and they met at a park and it just so happened that over the years, a friendly rivalry began between the marketing department and the supply department. Every year they would play softball against one another and it became a a fun rivalry. Support versus marketing in their, their once a year softball game where one year the support staff absolutely demolished the marketing department in this softball game, one-handedly. And the next Monday when they came to work, the marketing department displayed how they were able to earn their keep. Because on the bulletin board, there was this large poster that said the following, The marketing department is pleased to announce that we came in second place in the recent softball season. After losing but one game all year. The support department, however, had a rather dismal season, winning only one game. (laughs) Perspective can make all the difference. Perspective deals with a particular attitude toward or a, a way of regarding something. You could think of perspective as a point of view or a way of, of understanding the world and interpreting the things that we encounter in the midst of it. Perspective can either aid or hinder a person. For example, Thomas Edison, the inventor of the light bulb, did not have immediate success with that invention. In fact, he struggled for years to invent a light bulb with a, a monofilament string that would illuminate enough and last. His perspective was expressed in his famous quote regarding his failures. He said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Perspective. How would you describe your perspective toward life? Whether you call it a philosophy or an attitude, what is your perspective? Is it materialistic? Materialism can be described with this attitude, Get all you can, can all you get, and then sit on the can. Get everything you can in life. Stuff is what life is about. Is that your perspective? For others, their perspective in life is hedonistic. What that means is life is described as being short and then you die. Therefore, eat, drink, and be merry. Party. Life's just a party. Why get stressed? Just enjoy it. This is just a a brief journey. So party. Just, Just live life large. Is that your perspective? For others, their perspective is one of the stoic. Life's hard. Deal with it. Complaining doesn't help. That's just life. Is that your perspective? The matter of perspective is crucial because your perspective, your understanding of the world around you will determine your attitude and your attitude will then influence your actions, your emotions, and your behavior. Now, this issue of perspective comes to the forefront when Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. In many ways, we are similar to the church to which Paul is writing this letter. You see, Colossae was afloat on a sea of philosophy, and they were taking on water. There were all these different philosophical ideas that were around them, and they were trying to apply these different philosophical perspectives to one central problem the presence of sin. How do you deal with this issue of sin that keeps coming back and back again like a a rock that is in your shoe and every step you feel it, but for some reason you can't get it out of your shoe? Well, the suggestions that were being made to the church were suggestions based on perspectives at the time. For example, look up to chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The reason he was saying that is because there was one group that said the way to deal with the presence of sin is to make more rules. Be firm. Know your rules. Be, be legalistic about things. Another group had a perspective of the way to overcome sin, and that was by suffering and deprivation. Look at verse 18. Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Asceticism means the, the severe discipline of the body in order to overcome sin and struggle. And so there was this group that was saying the way to deal with sin is to be harsh and strict, live a very strict, disciplined life. To another group, they argued the way to overcome sin was by looking for a super spirituality. Once again, I draw your attention to verse 18. Verse 18. These folks would be insisting upon asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. How do you deal with sin? You need a a super spiritual experience. Now, these perspectives simply will not work against sin. Look down to verse 23 where Paul gives the verdicts. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Each of those perspectives will not stop you from sinning. In many ways, if you try to follow legalism or stoicism or any different philosophy in dealing with sin, you'll end up much like a young man, 49-year-old David Rustin. In January, he was tragically found dead in his home outside of Baltimore, Maryland. His neighbors hadn't seen him for a few days and became worried, so they called the authorities. When the sheriff's department came in, they found Mr. Reston dead laying in his den. After examining the body, they came to this conclusion. He had died of envenomation, snake bite. You see, Mr. Reston had 124 snakes in his house. Many of them illegal snakes like cobras, black mambas, and rattlesnakes that he kept in plastic containers in his home. Trying to use legalism, severe self-discipline to stop sinning is like keeping a cobra in your house. It's only a matter of time before it bites you. So what do we do? What's the answer to dealing with this pervasive presence of sin? Well, the answer that we see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 can be summed up in this that you'll see on the screen. This is the main point of the message. Living with a resurrection perspective is the way for the believer to overcome the presence of sin. See, this is the foundational truth that guides us in how we are to live. Because notice, this perspective answers the how and the why. For example, of verse 5, look down to chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why are we to put to death what is earthly? Well, the answer is given in verses 1 through 4. It's the resurrection perspective. In verse 12, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Why do we do that? Because of the resurrection perspective that is listed in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. That's the why and the how that we do these things. It goes with where our mindset is, our perspective, how we understand life. And we understand life through the resurrection of Jesus. So, what is the resurrection perspective? Well, verse one tells us that the resurrection perspective means orienting our desires toward Jesus. Verse one begins with a statement if then you have been raised with Christ. The if then carries the weight of since, because you have been, since you have been raised with Christ. And the focus is our union with Jesus. One of the aspects of our faith that we often overlook is that our belief is not just about Jesus, but our belief causes us to be united with him. That's why Paul continually says, you have died with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Christ's death was our death by faith. We are united with him. Now, if we share in his death, then we also share in his resurrection. So that's why Paul says in verse 1, Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So he's saying that the resurrection of Christ has brought about a new way of thinking that we are to seek. That phrase, with him, means that not only are we united with him, but we share in what he has done. The scripture speaks of the resurrected Jesus as the final Adam. The eschatological Adam, the eschaton Adam, the final one who brings the new creation in. So if we are united with Jesus, that means that we share in the reality that he is the new Adam. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, believer, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Therefore, seek, that word seek means to pursue consistently. Seeking him is not a one and done thing. It speaks of a way of life that is continually in pursuit of, and notice what he says, the things that are above. So because we've been raised with Jesus, our mindset is to seek the things that are above. The things specifically that are where Christ is where he is seated at the right hand of God. This is simply a way of saying that you and I are to pursue God and the things of God, the things that are eternal. What does that look like? This past week, I was reading in Exodus 34 and came across these three verses. You'll see them on the screen. Moses is on top of the mountain where he's been interceding on behalf of Israel. And he says, God, show me your glory. Then in verse 5, it says the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and there proclaimed the name of the Lord. That word proclaimed, which is repeated twice, verse 5 and then verse 6, drew my attention. God showed up and he preached. He made a proclamation. It says he proclaimed the name of the Lord. You have to understand that proclaiming the name of the Lord is much more than God showing up on the mountain and saying, I'm the Lord, Period. It deals with the revelation of God's character. That's why in verse 6 he explains the Lord passed before him and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." God proclaims who he is. He is gracious, compassionate, merciful, forgiving, just. Now notice, those are the things that we are to pursue in life. If we are seeking the things that are above, our pursuit means wanting to know God. Who is God? God is merciful and gracious, slow to abound. That's why when he speaks of how we are to live and seeking him, notice back in Colossians in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, put on as God's chosen ones, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. Above all, these put on love. Are those not the characteristics of God? Is that not who God is? So what he is saying is that in verse 12, we are to put on the very thing that we are seeking. Because as we seek God, we will come to know mercy and grace, patience and steadfast love. And he says those are the things that we are to pursue and to desire. But that's the challenge, isn't it? How do we change what we desire? How do we come to want these things? I think it was Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, who once said, the heart wants what the heart wants. Why do you desire what you desire? You get right down to it, sometimes all we can say is, I don't know. I don't know why I want this thing. So the question is, how can we point our desires to desiring the things of God where Christ is seated at his right hand? See, we're often in conflict because we have things we desire, but we don't know why. How do we change what we want even after we're saved? Well, verse 2 gives us the insight to that. You see, the resurrection perspective means learning to think on Jesus. This is what directs our desires. Thinking will be like guardrails that can guide your desires where your desires ought to be. So if I desire something in my heart, in my thinking, I can know the truth and I can say no. To follow that desire will only lead in death. It will end up biting me in the end. So I don't want to go down that desire. I need to think. That's why he says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. These two verses are very similar, but the difference is verse one deals with seeking, desiring. Verse two deals with thinking, thinking on the things that are above. So I want to direct my thinking To who Jesus is. So how do we do that? It's one thing to say in church, let's think about Jesus. We're all together. We're here at least an hour each week, maybe two hours. So how do we do that, though, in the regular stuff of life? Because the truth is, you live your life in the regular mundane stuff of life more than you live it here at church. How do we think on Jesus at work when we're mowing the yard When we're cooking dinner, making the bed. How do we think on Jesus when things are not going well? When you're a a mother and you're at the grocery store with your two kids. You're walking in with your three-year-old toddler and your, your baby that's about eight months old. And at that point, the baby decides she's not happy and she starts crying. The toddler is like John the Baptist going before you, pulling everything off the shelves and stirring up trouble. Your cart's overflowing The huggies have fallen out on the floor, and at this point you just don't care to pick them up again, so you just kick them as you're trying to push along because now the point's survival. How do you think on Jesus then? You see, this isn't just apple pie way off in the the future buying by stuff. This is real life. And what it takes is discipline. It's not easy. It takes training our mind. I've been reading a little book and I've enjoyed it immensely called Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Warren Hardens. I'm sorry, Tish Harrison Warren. In this book, she walks through a normal everyday life, parts of life, and talks about how do you worship God in the midst of this. Chapter two is entitled Brushing Your Teeth. If you'll allow me to read a portion of this. When I stand before the sink brushing my teeth and see my reflection in the mirror, I want it to be an act of blessing where I remember that these teeth I'm brushing are made by God for a good purpose, that my body is inseparable from my soul, and that both deserve care because of the embodied work of Jesus. My body is destined for redemption and for eternal worship. For eternal skipping and jumping and twirling and hand raising and kneeling and dancing and singing and chewing and tasting. This is a great mystery. My teeth will be in eternity and are eternally good. My minty breath, a foretaste of glory divine. Such thinking in front of the mirror takes discipline. But when we act with discipline consistently, guess what? It soon becomes a habit. So it is engaging in inner dialogue. Think on Jesus. Think on mercy. Think on those things. And those things start coming out in our life. But the truth is, is that we will not apply discipline to anything that we do not see value in. We discipline ourselves for what we see value in. So we have to come back and say, okay, what is the value of seeking and thinking on Christ? Well, that is answered in verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, you have died. We've talked about union with Christ. That's reference to the crucifixion. But your life is hidden. That means protected with Christ in God. But it's my life. My life really isn't about the the stuff here. My life is in Christ. Did he not say he is the way, the truth, and the life? That's not something way off in the future. It's something now guarded in Christ. He is the source of life. So when I'm setting my mind on things that are above, I'm setting my mind on true living. That's what life is. It is joy and peace. It's not about stuff. It is knowing Christ, living for him, and experiencing the life that he desires. The glory of the life of Christ and desiring that struck me in a weird way this week. Bear with me, if you will, for just a moment. I was listening to the radio, and the song by Billy Joel, Piano Man, came on. Now, this is probably his best-known song. It's autobiographical. It's really about his life. And as I was listening to it, I'd been studying this this week, thinking about life in Christ. And I was struck by the, the sadness of the lyrics I'm not going to sing it nor play it. But listen. Now, John at the bar is a friend of mine. He gets me my drinks for free. And he's quick with a joke or a light up your smoke. But there's someplace he'd rather be. He says, Bill, I believe this is killing me. As a smile ran away from his face. Well, I'm sure that I could be a movie star. If I could get out of this place. Now Paul is a real estate novelist who never had time for a wife. And he's talking with Davy who's still in the Navy and probably will be for life. And the waitress is practicing politics as the businessmen slowly get stoned. Yes, they're sharing a drink they call loneliness. But it's better than drinking alone. The disappointment in that's palatable. It's about looking around and realizing my life is not ending up the way that I thought it would be. And longing for something more. And I thought what we're longing for deep down, what the people in that song are longing for is life. And what Paul is saying here is life is found in Christ. The very things that we are longing for so that even when we encounter the disappointments in life, the struggles in life, the joys of life, we know that the life here is not the sum of our existence. It's in Christ. And in Him, satisfaction is found. But to live such a way will bring us at odds with the world. And everything the culture around us says is life If you seek that, they'll say, that's crazy. You're going down a one-way street that will lead you to the wrong side of history. And that's why Paul wants to remind us that the resurrection perspective has a hope that brings us to endure. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, you know how our life is hidden? Our life's Jesus. Nothing can touch him. He says when, your life, when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. It's speaking to the time when Jesus returns. And he's saying at that point, you will be with him. What you are longing for will be brought to fruition. Now we get just little appetizer samplers of what life is about in the spirit. But he's saying on that day, you will experience what you've been longing for fully and completely. And that hope propels us out to live each day. You see, there are those who say, well, if you seek the things that are above and you set your mind on the things that are above, you won't do any good here. Paul says to the contrary. It's seeking Christ, thinking on Christ, living in that hope that will compel you out into the world without a sense of drudgery, but with hope in who he is. It will cause us to love and not hate, to forgive rather than attack, to seek Jesus rather than seeking sin. J.R.R. Tolkien, in his magisterial work, The Lord of the Rings, captures this hope that propels us into the battle very vividly in the middle book of the trilogy, The Two Towers. The people of Rohan, along with Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, have retreated to a fortress known as Helm's Deep. They are surrounded by the orc army that massively outnumbers them. The outer walls of the fortress have been breached. Hope's lost. They're about to die. When Aragorn remembers the words that were spoken to him by Gandalf. Throughout the book, Gandalf represents the heavenly intervention, as it were, the power of something beyond this world. See, Gandalf had left to get help. And he had told Aragorn, Look to my coming on the fifth day at first light. At dawn, look to the east. I just got chills. Aragorn remembers these words and he remembers that it's the fifth day. And he looks at the king of Rohan and he says, let us ride into battle. What changed? He remembered the words of hope. I'm coming back. So he says, let's ride into battle. And that's exactly what they do. And as they exit the gates and they are engaging in warfare with this orc army, this hideous demonic army that is around them, Aragorn looks up to a ridge as the sun is coming up over it. And he sees there on a white steed Gandalf surrounded by the armies of the Roahim. And they come in and they turn the day. But it was that moment of hope where he said... Gandalf will be true to his word. Let us go out. And Christ has said when he appears, your life will appear with him. Therefore, seek him now. Think on him now. And know the joy of life and hope that comes from him who is your life. Church, it's a call to discipline our thinking. So we will seek the right things. Knowing that that's where life is. Not buying into the lies around us. And living with hope. Today I call you to a resurrection perspective. To live with that thought. Seeking him. Would you bow with me in prayer? This altar will be open as we begin to sing. This may be a time you just want to pray, Lord change my thinking. The truth is there are times where all of us feel overwhelmed by the challenges of this world overwhelmed by the bills to pay, by the the hecticness of life, by the, the struggle at times. So this morning, it may be a time where you just want to come to one of these kneeling benches, kneel down and say, Lord, set my mind on where it needs to be. And tomorrow... So say tomorrow I want to dive in and just get a thought about Jesus in my mind. Church, that may be all you need to commit to right now is tomorrow just meditate on the truth that God is love or God is patient. And let that be in your thinking. It's, it's warfare. I'm not sending you out without you being aware. It takes discipline. But if you believe that He is life, you'll engage in that discipline. And God will empower you. Father, you know our struggles in and out. You've walked this earth. You know the drudgery, sometimes the monotony of life. And Lord, it weighs us down. So Father, we want to to throw off those shackles. And we want to seek the things that are above. We want to set our minds on Christ where he is seated at your right hand. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to live the life you intend. Father, all too often we settle for far less So Lord, change our thinking, direct our desires to Christ who is our life. In his name I pray, amen.